Hello, everyone. Welcome to Multiple Calls, Episode 53. I'm Scott Hewlett. Whether it's related to how we take care of fires or how we take care of ourselves, the insight gained from the marriage of anecdotal experience with scientific data is incredibly powerful. Yet it still tends to be a love hate relationship for many, especially in the fire service. We love data that supports what we've always been doing and hate anything that shows us where our staunch beliefs have been wrong. When we're affirmed, it prompts, I told you so's, and I didn't need a study to tell me that. When we're challenged, it's all too common to hear, you can find studies to support whatever you want. Sure, there's pseudoscience and bad scientists producing biased work, just like there's pseudo and bad firefighters producing nothing but headaches. But the fields of science have long had standard filters for what is accepted. Randomized controlled trials, meta-analysis, and peer review to name a few. And firefighting has made incredible progress in the area of research in recent decades. On and off duty, technology is now allowing us to gather data to help us be and do our best. My guest this episode is an assistant professor of kinesiology at Santa Ana College and a PhD student focusing on wearable technology and how it may help inform and guide a firefighter's physical training and recovery, both on and off the job. He works with over 30 fire departments conducting physical and physiological assessments and educating on topics related to firefighters' health and wellness. Here's my chat with Daniel Hagera. Why don't you start by telling me a bit of your journey to getting where you're at now and why you ended up in the area of study and work that you're in? I started in just sport performance or human performance at an early age, in my early 20s, interning for LA Galaxy. And then I started working with their professional, their second division team, and then a collegiate division two team. And that's where my experience in strength and conditioning got started. I very quickly realized that there is a lot of competition in that space. And like most of us, by us, I mean like kinesiology graduates, they go and they work in some realm of personal training. So I got connected with someone that used to work for Exos. That's where I interned at. And he had his own thing going called Static Gains. So I was working with them over there. And one of the, the founders, one of the partners there, they wanted to get into fire. They wanted to start working with firefighters. And this is where we kind of created a little subdivision to the sport performance realm. And we started reaching out to different fire departments. In that conversation, somebody told us about the program that Santa Ana College has. Santa Ana College is a small community college in Orange County, Southern California. So we go reach out to them. We have a meeting, a pitch meeting to them. They were not interested, but they reached out to me later on and says if I was interested in working with fire. I said, sure. So that's kind of how I got into the realm of fire. It wasn't necessarily because I was pursuing it or chasing it. It just, the opportunity just presented itself. And at that time in my life, I was willing to explore and try anything. And from there on, I was part-time or adjunct instructor at Santa Ana Community College for two years. And then I got offered the full-time tenure-track position with Santa Ana College working with the fire departments. So now we work with a little under 40 departments. And now that we're getting out of COVID, we were ramping back up. We tested about 1,200 firefighters last year, 2021, and we're getting close to about 1,400 firefighters this year, 2022, and our average prior to COVID was around 1,500. So that, in a very condensed nutshell, that's how I got working with fire. Did you have any preconceived notions of what the fire service community was going to be like, and how did that translate to what your actual experience was when you sort of got to know everyone? I had zero experience 
zero expectations, no preconceived notions of what working with the fire department was going to be like. In the first conversations that I had with the captain at one of the departments that we were working with, he let me know in the quick two-minute tutorial was, it's a big fraternity, you have to get buy-in, they don't care what you know, and it's paramilitary. And that's as much as I knew. And the first two or three years working with fire was filled with a bunch of mistakes, not necessarily on the strength and conditioning side, but on the culture side. That's where a lot of the learning lessons came from. Yeah, can you expand on that and let me know what you mean by it? So strength and conditioning they have, it works by a set of principles. It is in order to induce adaptations, you have to stress the body in whatever means that you're trying to achieve. So if you want to get bigger and stronger, you have to lift heavier weights. If you want to improve your cardiovascular conditioning, then you have to train at a high percentage of your heart rate. But how do we get the firefighters to actually care about this and say, okay, I will do what you are telling me to do. And it's the way that you build a story around it. If when I would go there, and this is early on, I would go to the fire departments and give them a 45 to 90 minute PT workout. And right off the bat, I would lose the guys. There, So there's no way I'm going to get a 90-minute PT workout. No, there's no way I'm going to get a 45-minute PT workout. So right away, everything I had to say was was already dismissed. They were saying that because of the volume of calls that they're doing through their shift? Exactly. So they have, on paper, they have about 60 to 90 minutes to PT. Anywhere from, let's say, like 0830 to 10 or from 09 to 1030. That's on paper. That's your PT time. But as we all know, is the calls take precedent. So if that call goes off 10 minutes in, well, you got to go. And say some guys do come back and they try to pick up where they lost off. But if that second call comes in, there's a PT for the day. So I would start asking, I was like, okay, well, on average, how much time do you guys have? And there is never really an answer to that because the call can come in 10 minutes in or it can come in 30 minutes in. So there is no real like pattern to this. It's very mercurial, very sporadic. So when I first started, this is about five, six years ago now, I'm speaking in generalities because, of course, every crew is different, every department is different. But speaking in generalities, now what I'm noticing is a lot of the, the captains are saying, if you can't get your PT in in the morning, find some time throughout the day where you can get it in. I'm given that they don't have the inspections, they don't have details, they don't have other responsibilities outside of running calls, is go get your PT in. The captains are becoming a lot more aware of how important it is to PT. Yeah, it's a little bit of a faulty logic to think just because that block of time, if you get calls during that time, then it's done. We wouldn't say that for a meal. We wouldn't say, well, we had a call at 1230, so we're not eating lunch today at all. Right, exactly. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that from one of my lectures. But anyways, that same logic is now what the fire service is really starting to like wrap around is how important PT really is. One of the mistakes that I was making early on was I was going in there not knowing anything and I was lecturing to them without knowing the culture. So then once I realized that mistake, what I started doing was just asking questions is, what was PT like when you guys first got brought on? And we have young guys there, we have senior guys there. So whether that's five, seven, 15 or 20 years ago, and then from there, I learned the history of PT and how it was adapted or adopted in the fire service. I asked the same question about nutrition is what was nutrition like? 
what was Neil on the station when you guys first got brought on? Again, five, seven, 15, 20 years from now or ago. And they all kind of chip in on that. So that allowed me to see the progression of how the one exercise and diet has really evolved in the fire stations. So once I started learning that culture and learning the language that they use, because we're 40 fire departments, and when you start hearing the same language, the same vocabulary, the same phrasing, that's when you pick up and it says, ah, this is the culture. Do you have any experience with other groups that do high-intensity physical work? And do you receive the same sort of pushback and problems in those other communities? The beginning of my career was in sports, which is in athletics. It's the same thing. It's high-intensity work, both at high loads, so weights, and also high-intensity in terms of heart rate. And the pushback was not even close to what I have experienced in the fire industry. One, I'm going to attribute it to age because they're a lot younger. There was high school kids and collegiate age kids. So they're 18, 20, 22 years old, and they know that they have to get bigger, faster, stronger if they want to play at the next level. So the buy-in is pretty much already there. Like, sure, there is some that you have to earn. You have to earn the respect and you have to earn pretty much that. You have to earn the respect. But nonetheless, is it's a lot easier because they already know that they need to get bigger, faster, stronger to play at the next level. So were you surprised then when you come to the fire community, you would think it would make sense to think that for the guys and girls, the people that are doing the work, they would experience the work and have an epiphany like, oh, that's really hard. I need to get stronger or I need to work on my cardio. That there isn't just either an internal motivation or an experiential motivation. A hundred percent. I was of that same mentality as, hey, guys and girls, why aren't you guys PTing regularly? Like, don't you guys want to avoid injury? Don't you guys want to be fit for duty? That was my mentality. Why is there so much pushback here that was not known in the culture? Well, the hockey player or the football player, they love hockey or football. And they want to be really good at it. And they're competitive with themselves and with other people. And they want to win. So that's where the drive comes from. And for some reason, there's a lot of areas in the fire service where none of that exists. Firefighters are extremely competitive. They're very competitive in nature. And they love their job. It's something that I keep hearing over and over and over again. It's the best job in the world. At different fire departments, at different age groups, I hear the same thing. It's the best job in the world. And as I kind of probe a little bit more into that, they tell me why. It's because of the brotherhood and just how tight everybody gets. So they want to be good at their job. And PT won't necessarily make them better at their job. It's not an absolute must. It's there to build resilience against the stressors of the job and the illnesses of disease that come with the job. But it's not absolutely necessary. That's the way you see it? Or you're saying that's the way they see it? It's a little bit combination of both. Because I've worked with guys that don't really care for PT. These are the older, more senior personnel. And they're good firefighters. If something goes down, they know what to do. They know their techniques and they know their tactics. They may move a little bit slower. They may have a harder time like putting up with the intensity of it in terms of like from a physical level. But they're good firefighters. Have you seen that or is that what you're being told by them or others? This is what I'm being told by them and others is that they can do their job well as opposed to those who are one like fit in terms of cardiovascular fitness is that they don't get fatigued as easily is they take longer to go through their bottle because they're fit. They're more efficient with oxygen. 
it makes you resilient and better physically capable to do the job, but you won't necessarily be a bad firefighter if you don't prioritize PT. And again, this is not from my personal experience, so this is what some of the guys have shared with me, of where really PT fits into, into fire. It just seems to me biologically that doesn't make sense for someone to be able to say, well, I've been here this long, I have these techniques, I have this experience, so I can ride the couch and still be good. But the younger guys that don't have the experience and the techniques, they need to be fit. To me, it doesn't matter when you go to a level of work, the person's body can either do it or it can't. So I'm also a PhD student, and for one of my assignments, I was doing a, a kind of a qualitative project. So I started interviewing different people at different ranks, the firefighter, the engineer, captain, and then BCs and above. And on one of them, I got to interview the fire chief, and he says that in terms of PT, he says, I probably can count the number of times where I didn't feel strong enough to do my job because when something is heavy, I can call on more crew members and they'll help me do the lift or whatever it is. He says, but I lost count of the times that I felt humbled by a working fire in terms of their cardiovascular fitness, where he just didn't have the capacity to do it and where he had to pull out and he had to sit down and rest and recover. And so he says, from like, from that perspective, you feel like you've let down your crew, but I was able to do my job up to that point. He says, like the techniques and tactics, I moved slower. I wasn't as efficient as the other guy, but I still did my job. And that's kind of where this rationale really comes from, is pulling from that. I think people tell themselves a few stories to make themselves feel better. I mean, to say I was slower, I wasn't as efficient in a job where seconds make a difference, that should be a wake-up call. And it is common for firefighters to think, well, we do everything as a team. We're going to throw that ladder together. We're going to force this door together. We're going to move this hose together. And it doesn't always work like that. It's a team of individuals doing their dividing work to get everything done as fast as possible. So if we all had to throw the ladder together and then do the next job together, it just takes way too long. So it's fine to say, well, if something was heavy, I would just call on for help. But an insider perspective, I mean, if your crew member goes down inside a house and you're the only one there, then you need to be strong enough to move them and you can't always call for help. Or you can call for help, but it's not necessarily going to be there in time. So the job very often does require you to specifically be strong enough to do something. When you said it's where the seconds count, it reminds me of, we have a very close family friend where he got a full-time position at Cal Fire. And he was probably 10 months into his probation and they have a working fire that they're in. And the way they explained it to me was it was a hoarder house. So you don't really know which way is out, which way is in, which way is to the next room because it's blocked by stuff. And in that, the building flashed and our family friend, he got knocked unconscious. And the crew members were going in and out to try to find them and get him out and there was three attempts to go to come and get him and the first two failed the last one was the one where they actually found him and dragged him out fortunately our family friend did make it he has about third degree burns on 40 percent of his body but nonetheless as he made it and when i'm speaking to the crew members and especially the guy that found him and dragged him out i asked him is the cow and he says one adrenaline for sure Two, me and him were talking earlier about a situation like this. Like, what the heck would we do? Because we're both on probation. And three, he says, I think it was PT. We, we have to condition for this. And if I wasn't capable, because this guy is 200 and something pounds, he's a big, tall, stocky guy, our, our family friend. 
And he says, if I wasn't training for doing these like dummy drags or these sled drags, then who knows if I would have had the capability to get both of us out of there. That's another experience that people have shared with me where these qualities are important. The fire and the work and the equipment that it requires, the fire doesn't care, right? It doesn't know how long you've been on or who you are or where you came from. The work is the work. The situation's the situation. We can and we should be depending on each other, but we all as individuals need to be able to depend on ourselves. And then I think from that, it makes it even easier to be able to depend on each other as a team. The nuances that I, not being a firefighter, that I don't personally understand. And it takes conversations like these and with the guys and girls at the fire service to give me their perspective and their experience for me to add that to my arsenal and make kind of pull from that when I'm like lecturing, when I'm talking to the guys and, and discussing a topic at hand. It's always easier to snow someone that's on the outside. <laughs> for someone that's on the inside is instructing, they know the insider perspective so they can for lack of a better term call bullshit when they hear it but not to say that everything you're being told is bullshit by everybody that's not what i'm saying i'm saying there inevitably be an element of that amongst the crowd and it does make it very hard for you to discern what's fact and what's fiction in our field in the snc or strength conditioning field there is kind of a gap between the the theory or the science and application and it's up to the applied sports scientists or the applied exercise physiologists to try to get all that science and says, how does this actually work in the real world, the applicational side of things? And a lot of it falls short. It's just not feasible in the real world. Once you find what it's feasible, quote unquote, feasible in the real world, now it's how does this fit in the fire culture? How does this fit in the fire service? So there's essentially two big bridges that needs to be crossed. And one, the practitioner, let's say that myself, is understand the science, try to figure out how can I massage and modify this to fit in the, in the real world. But then once I think it makes sense to myself and it makes sense to me on paper, now I have to go and run it by the fire population and ask them, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? Does this have any true legs to fit in your guys' world? And I'd say the majority of the time it gets shot down. It doesn't fit. There's a common approach where if firefighters are offered something, here's some science, here's a skill, here's a tactic. And firefighters can be very quick to judge and say that won't work before they dive deep and learn whatever it is and then put it into practice to see if it actually will work and get experience with it. Or they'll try it once, it doesn't work, and they'll feel, well, that's garbage. It's only garbage because you haven't spent the time to master it to truly be able to test it. So that might be why things get shot down very quickly. And we also struggle in our industry with there's a lot more science now than there ever has been on fires and helping us take anecdotes over the years and fires over the years and show the physics and the science behind it and why things happen the way they did and how we should approach things in the future. There's cultures of science deniers. They don't want to look at it at all. They want to live in the world of anecdotes. And there's those that want to wholly depend on the science and ignore the anecdotes. And I think what I'm hearing from you, even in your field, there needs to be a marriage of those two things. Yes, but it's up to the practitioner to present it in a way that it's not telling them what to do. lesson that I learned is once you start lecturing and telling them what to do, it's game over. It's helping them get there themselves. 
So it's more asking the questions is, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And what if we change this and that? And then from there, they'll say, yeah, I think that would work. Once you start including their feedback is if you pitch it at first and they said, ah, it's these three reasons that it's not going to work. And then you take it back and then you modify little things. It's like, hey, with your feedback, this is kind of a different approach. What do you think about this? And then they say, yeah, this is a little bit better. And then you modify it again based off feedback. And then you bring it back again. And they say, yeah, this actually would work. So it's almost as if they helped create whatever new thing that we're trying to do. So it wasn't me telling them from the podium, you guys need to do X, Y, and Z if you guys want to get better at A, B, and C. It's, hey, help me create something for you guys together. I think that's where it helped. It's interesting. It'd be nice to know where the tipping point comes because when you're a newer firefighter or trying to get on, you're extremely aware of what you don't know. And you're hungry for people to tell you exactly what to do. And at some point, egos kick in over time and we lose that ability to truly be humble and think there's probably some things I still don't know. And perhaps I should still, in a lot of cases, just do what I'm told. And from the experience of doing the thing, then you have an epiphany or a new awareness to then be able to judge whether you think that specific thing is valuable or not. In these talks you mentioned, uh, the first year guys are probationary. The language that I've learned is speak when spoken to and don't ask questions. When they tell you how to do something is you do it. You don't say, well, why do you do it this way? And I think that mentality, if not realized, can be a, a huge challenge to overcome later on into the career. I was raised in the fire culture as don't ask questions and do what I'm told. So now you get a little bit older and then you have that exact same mentality for the younger generation is, hey, don't ask me any questions. Is Don't challenge me. There's that that trickles into some of the stuff on the PT side of things is, hey, don't challenge what I'm currently doing and telling me that I'm doing it wrong. As a professor, are you open to your students asking whys and challenging the things that you're telling them and having critical thoughts and conversation and dialogue and you feel then confident enough as the professor to speak to it and be able to offer them the why behind it, as opposed to shutting them down and just say, take what I'm telling you. 100%. And science is always be questioning and challenging the status quo. Because when you challenge and question the status quo, it leads to different questions from a different perspective. And then those who pursue higher degrees and they start getting into the research side of things, or if they go into industry, and they start working with, with athletes, firefighters, police, military, right off the bat, then they have that same mindset of, why are we doing it this way? What if we change this one little variable right here? So if we can cultivate and nurture that mindset from a very young age, then they will become like true practitioners, true scientists in their own discipline, whether it's in, like, in a science realm, like in a lab, a PhD level, or is in the weight room. Is We've been doing sets from 10 to 12 for I don't know how many years. What if I go heavier? What if I go lighter? And all these different things is that spirit of inquiry is always be challenging the status quo. And my job as the professor is one, to, to defend the, the teachings that I'm showing them. And then two is also for them to start developing that, hey, I shouldn't be fearful of my professor. I should be asking questions. And the instructor and the professor shouldn't be fearful of their students. No, yeah, absolutely not. The professor should welcome these questions. They should cultivate this environment where from the day one of classes, if something doesn't make sense to you, or if you think you have, for lack of better words, a better idea of how to do this, bring it up. 
because I'm sure there's plenty of other students that may have a very similar question. Yeah, a great piece of advice that I've offered before and I've heard others offered as well is if someone's teaching you something and they can't tell you the why, or if they don't know the why, they're not offering to say, I'll look into that for you or I'll get back to you on it. Let's look it up right now. Something to that effect. If one of those two things aren't happening, then it's probably someone you shouldn't be listening to. And a lot of these teachings, there's a lot of different variables that can influence how effective a training method could be or a nutritional method could be. So if someone like a student would ask a question, let's say we're talking about, I don't know, ketogenic dieting, and we explain kind of just really high scope. These are community college students. So it's very, very broad, very high scope. We don't get into the nuances of it all. And then they ask a question that is, how about an endurance athlete? Should they be on a ketogenic diet? And this is actually my personal experiences. My answer was, I don't know if that would be optimal. Let's look that up and let's talk about it next time. And then that's where I've started learning about how efficacious is a ketogenic diet for endurance athletes. Then we go down that path and then we bring it up like very briefly in class is remember that one question? This is what I found on it. If I'm interested in learning more about it, come talk to me after class. That way we don't go and steal the time from the other lecture stuff. But that's one way that I start learning a lot more is because of my students are asking questions on things that I don't know about. You offered me in the information you sent when we first started talking that there's a few popular lecture topics that you deliver at fire stations. Let's talk through those. And so let's start off with the life cycle of a firefighter from a wellness perspective. So on this one, and I'll go very high scope on these. I'm stealing this from one of my colleagues. Her name is Robin. She's been working with fire probably 16 plus years, and she was a former firefighter herself. So credit to her is she kind of put firefighters in three buckets. And she says the first bucket is the first, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years of the job. She says for the firefighter who's early on, the only thing that matter is the gym and the job. That's what they dedicate themselves to. And then the second bucket, now they're in the, like the midlife of their fire career. Now they're either getting married or they're getting divorced. They have three kids under five and they're also, they're shorthanded on at the department. So they're working some overtime. They have some force overtimes there. There's a lot of things that they have to juggle. So health and wellness may not be that top priority for them anymore. And then those who are getting closer to retirement now is my back hurts, my knee hurts, my shoulder hurts, and I'm still on a frontline apparatus. So I still have to be running these calls but I just have to hope that my back is holding up when we have to lift this 300-something pound patient in a close-quarter bathroom where they just bagled out. Is all right, let's hope my body keeps keep going. And they start prioritizing health and wellness a little bit more because now once they get into retirement, they, don't, they just want to be sitting on a recliner the whole time and they want to actually go do things with their grandkids, with their family, et cetera. So from a high scope, that's kind of the three stages of a firefighter that I've, again, adopted from my colleague Robin. And now is how do we speak to each one of these categories here? The younger ones, they have less pains. They have less pains, less injuries. So it's, all right, let's get after the cardio. Let's get after the high weights. The other ones, it's more, how do we get you to do what you need to do in as least time as possible? So instead of giving a 45-minute PT workout, can we do something in about 15 to 20 minutes where we know that PT is important, but you have a bunch of other commitments? How can we give you a 20-minute PT workout that you can do three times a week that's still going to focus on some strength, some cardiovascular, some flexibility and stability, some core stuff? And then the last bucket is how do we 
get you to continue moving despite the pains and injuries that you may have. You may not be able to touch your toes. You may not be able to squat. You may not be able to, to do these movements, but training those muscles and those movement patterns is still important. How do we find modifications for you? How do we find equipment, whether it be barbells, dumbbells, resistance bands, kettlebells, sandbags? What can we give you? What tools and resources can we give you so you can still move in the same, the movement patterns are important, but without, let's say, loading with heavy weights, without really pushing that heart rate really high if we don't know if the heart is healthy for that. So really high scope, those are the three buckets and the big challenges for each one. Are you or Robin, over the time you've been doing this work, are you encountering any firefighters that don't necessarily fall into one of those three buckets where regardless of what's going on in their life, they are adapting their physical fitness, their mental health awareness over time to, I mean, there's going to be like a very slow, short wave of ups and downs, not these huge spikes of high fitness, barring injury no fitness, high fitness, no fitness, or from high fitness to no fitness, and then just ride that out. Are you seeing people that are able to maintain an arc of performance ability over their career? Yes, but it's not the norm. It's very few and far in between. And because we have firefighters from the college age, so they're in the basic fire academy at the collegiate level, and then they start with the department and then they retire out, we have firefighters throughout the entire life cycle. So this is kind of where Robin got this analogy. We've been working with a lot of these guys. Our program, Santa Ana College, has been working with a lot of these firefighters for their entire careers. And given I'm just coming in here six years in, but as they share with me is, hey, this guy, he's, let's say, one in particular. He's now probably in his mid-40s. He's a captain. He says, hey, this guy in his heyday, he would shut down the treadmill. So we do a stress test called the Bruce Protocol, where it's a 21-minute test, and every three minutes it goes up in both speed and incline. And it's rare that we have guys go above 17 minutes on this, above 60 minutes on this. They're referring to this now captain. He says, this guy would shut it down every single year. And when speaking to him, he says, well, I get into the station a little early and I do some sort of PT. And that same discipline right there, whereas I get to the station a little early and I get some PT in, that same exact thing is what we notice in a few others is where once they get off duty, then they go to the gym or they stay at the station and they get some workout in. So they find time either 30, 45 minutes before or after work when they know they won't be interrupted by calls to get something in. But again, that's very far and few in between. Or they're finding time on their days off. Yes, and absolutely. When they go on their days off, a lot of them, they have families. They have to do the husband and the wife thing. They got to do the mom and the dad thing. And they have all a bunch of other responsibilities that they have to attend to on their off duties, but they find some time to get something in. And so it's that discipline already of, I got to do this. And there's no negotiating that. But yeah, definitely those do exist. Definitely in a overall in our culture, we're still trying to make a lot of people aware that just a little bit every day, even if you work out seven days a week and just do a little bit is way more beneficial than doing the all in, all off kind of approach. Absolutely. And I myself am victim to that as well, is I have that very all in mentality. And then when things get tough, it's like, oh shit, I got homework to do. Can't get PT in today. So I noticed that in myself and I noticed it in a bunch of our firefighters as well, the guys and the girls, is when they feel good and times are good, they're all about it. And then life happens and then 
they kind of fall off the wagon. And this is something that I've stolen from some guy we just met on Instagram. His name is DeRope. And he was over at, on campus and we we're talking about for 30 minutes. And he says he has a 5, 10, 15 program. Is if you're going to fall off the wagon or if you can't find the time, just do five minutes of something. Here's a little five minute routine. So at least you can check off the boxes. You did something for five minutes. Yes, you're not going to lose weight or gain bigger muscles, but who cares? You checked off the box. You stuck to your routine. And once you can build that habit for five minutes, is now let's go 10 minutes. Add these two sets in there. Add one or two more exercises. And now you have a 10-minute workout. Even five or 10 minutes of good mobility and stretching and movement will make you feel way better than you did beforehand. 100%. And that's where that kind of his, his teachings come from is I know that five minutes is not going to do anything, but what is it going to do for them psychologically? And he says, that's what I'm going after. I'm not going after the physiological adaptations. I'm going after how does it make them feel psychologically? They will feel better after they stretch for five minutes. They will feel better after they stretch and they do some push-ups for 10 minutes. And then it's that kind of baby steps. I've quoted one of our captains a number of times when he said, if you could teach someone passion, you wouldn't have to teach them anything else. Ooh, I like that. And really, that's what that other prof is saying, right? If you can get them psychologically and it becomes an internal drive, then they're on their own. They don't need you anymore. Yeah, I'm stealing that one too. There's a book called From Buddy to Boss. The book, it wouldn't be wholly relative to you. Perhaps it would, actually. Perhaps if you're trying to get an insight into the service, it would be a great book for you. It's written by Chase Sargent. And I believe he breaks them down into more categories, but kind of like the three buckets you were talking about, that idea of categorizing he breaks firefighters down into a b and c players so your a players are pushing the limits they're progressive they're taking the old and incorporating the new and driving the fire service forward and you don't have to worry about teaching them you absolutely can when they want it and they're going to uptake it and they're going to dialogue about it these are the easy ones to have in a class And then you have your C players on the other end of the spectrum that are barely there in body and probably not there in mind and maybe half in uniform. And the A and the C are smaller percentages, say, for argument's sake, 10% on both ends. And then you have your 80% in the middle, which are your B players, which can be greatly influenced to then move up to become A players. So a really great instructor once told me and from reading it from Chase, he echoed it that you should always be teaching to the Bs. So don't worry about the As and don't worry about trying to convert the Cs, just teach to the Bs. The next piece you mentioned was how you can use caffeine to your advantage with minimal negative side effects, which I'm sure is going to hit home with the vast majority of us. So speak to that if you could. This caffeine lecture is we wanted to approach it from a very non-biased perspective. We did not want to encourage the use of caffeine, nor did we want to discourage the use of caffeine. It was simply just to educate. It's to say, well, this is what caffeine does, and this is how long it has an effect on you for. Knowing this, how does this fit into your routine now, and what small changes can you make on it? So caffeine, very again, very high scope here, is it blocks this chemical in your body called adenosine from binding onto your brain and causing you to feel fatigued and tired. The chemical makeup of caffeine looks very similar to adenosine. It binds onto those receptors and now it blocks fatigue from setting in. So caffeine is very important in the fire service for obvious reasons. They have multiple wake-ups, they get very poor to little sleep, is they need something to keep them feeling alert. So caffeine does help with 
muscular endurance. It does help with time to fatigue. It helps with the decrease in the perception of pain. It helps increase mental sharpness. So these are all the benefits of it. The firefighters don't need much convincing on why it's good for them. Now, the part where the education part's in is how long does caffeine stay active in your body? So usually the half-life of caffeine is anywhere from like 10 to 12 hours. If you consume it at 8 in the morning, 10 hours after that, you're, it's still active in your body. Maybe not as active. You maybe not feel the effects of it, but it's still circulating. It's having an effect on your brain. And usually, and I do this myself, is in midday around 12, 1 or 2 is I reach for a cup of coffee. Knowing that that is still going to be active now for another 10 to 12 hours is how much of that is going to preclude my ability to fall asleep. Now, many of us, including myself, I think to myself, well, coffee doesn't have much of an effect on me anymore. I just do it because I associate it with productivity. And we reach for that cup of coffee or whatever energy drink at sometime in the afternoon, early evening, what have you. So how much of that is going to affect our ability to fall asleep? We already know that sleep is a huge issue in the fire service. Is there a solution to that one? I don't know. We can speak about that one. But nonetheless, is how much more of a challenge are we adding to ourselves when we're consuming this caffeine? And caffeine can come in different drinks. It'd be energy drinks, your pre-workouts, your caffeine pills, your, and especially your coffee. How much of a challenge are we going to impose on ourselves with a caffeine intake? So what we kind of a suggestion is, whatever your caffeine intake is, is try to consume it earlier. If you usually have, let's say, three beverages, you got your morning coffee, your afternoon coffee, and then whatever energy drink, we tell them, don't change it. Just try to get that last drink a little bit earlier, about one or two hours earlier, so that way we're not removing anything from their existing routine. Is We're just trying to push back that window a little bit earlier so they don't have that much trouble or just another variable affecting their ability to fall asleep. And that's very high scope. To me, learning about the adenosine receptors, I'm 47 now. I've been drinking coffee for a long, long time. And it just shows that even something you've been doing for... 30 years, you can suddenly learn something and that completely changes how you think it affected your body. So here in my mind, I'm thinking it's like an upper, right? It's like epi in a way that just spikes your energy level. And I had no idea about the adenosine receptors until a couple weeks ago. So it's funny you're bringing it up now in this conversation, listening to Dr. Andrew Huberman talk to Matt Walker, and they were speaking about this exact thing. Like, And he mentioned how we should be delaying our first cup of coffee to 90 minutes after we wake up to allow the adenosine to start to break down in your body because you block it and it's still building up. You have a massive buildup. And in the afternoon, when the coffee wears up, all the adenosine now binds to the receptors and that's the crash. Is that correct? My intelligence on this is nowhere near where Matt Walker's is at. So I understand it from like that high school perspective. There's going to be a lot of nuances in terms of the timing of caffeine in terms of like what you just mentioned, 60, 90 minutes post wake up. I wouldn't be able to comment on that and speak intelligently on that. Yeah, it's the first I've heard of it. And now I hear you say it two weeks later, which is sort of coincidental and ironic. So yeah, it's great. I just think if you learn something new, there's obviously a lot of other people that don't know it either. And it's definitely worth looking into. And what we do know is that these receptors, we build a tolerance over time. Eventually, we will build more of these receptors, allowing more adenosine to, to bind and therefore causing more fatigue. Now, when we go through a phase of saying, you know what, I'm going to decrease my caffeine intake. 
So now we have less caffeine, but more receptors than they originally were be ready to bind. So now that's where that kind of that withdrawal feeling comes from. It's before I would have two cups of coffee. Now I'm only going to have one, but I feel just as shitty. I feel even shittier because that's what's happening physiologically is now we have a lot more receptors than we originally had or fatigue begins to bind. That's where we can have the headaches, the lethargy, the low energies, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, you get the adenosine tsunami. Exactly. So if we have any aspirations to drop our caffeine intake, we have to be strategic about it because if not, you're going to be going through some withdrawals. You might not be able to speak this specifically. So my thought would be then you stop caffeine or you decrease it. You've created all these additional receptors, adenosine receptors. Now, eventually your body adapts and you get over that withdrawal and the one cup of coffee might be enough for you. So are you losing receptors over time if you're not using the caffeine like you were before? Is that why you adjust? Does your body adapt the other way? Or now that you have the receptors, are you stuck with them? The increased number of receptors. Obviously, we're always going to have the receptors. But Good question. With intelligence, I would not be able to say, if I'm to speculate, I would say that eventually the receptors would begin to, to dissipate and go back to the original quantity. But again, to speak with intelligence, I would not be able to tell you. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm just learning about it too. So <laughs> I have a lot of questions. It's definitely a topic worth, worth exploring, especially because how prevalent it is in the industry. So if we're not going to change, at least I'm not going to be able to change caffeine culture in the fire service. So the, the aspiration is teach them the good, the bad, and the ugly. So once they have the education on it, they can now decide how they're going to modify if they're going to modify. Are you finding more receptivity in general in the fitness world to basically biohacking? That's what we're doing, right? We're understanding how all these factors interplay and integrate in our bodies. And we're trying to find the right combinations to basically biohack ourselves and get results. Do you find that's more common now than it ever has been because of the information we have access to? So I'll take a step back on that question. I kind of obsessed over advertising and marketing for a while and learning what are the words, what are the tags that will get more views on a social media platform. And this is where I started learning about terminology like hacking or biohacking. I was getting a lot more traction. So because all of us humans are always looking for what's the easiest way to do this? What's the fastest way to do this? What's, what are the cheat codes? What are the secrets? I think that's where biohacking really came and blew up to what it is right now. It's great marketing, great advertising, great copywriting. Now that we are learning a lot more of the science is becoming a lot more prevalent because it's being disseminated through a lot of these social media platforms, it's not necessarily a hack. Is now we just learned how physiology truly works. And because the scientific literature isn't very sexy, it doesn't sell, it doesn't call attention, it doesn't have these nice headlines. As soon as I say firefighters biohack your energy levels with caffeine, now that's going to get some clicks and some reads. I'm just taking the scientific literature and modifying and massaging it, putting a catchy headline, and now firefighters would read it. Right. So I don't necessarily think we came up with something new. We, we discovered a new hack. It's somebody just disseminated the research and now broke it down to a, a, a block that we can understand and comprehend. Yeah, they aren't cheat codes. It's just learning how to use your body the way it's actually designed to be used. Exactly. And there's so much shit being talked about social media platforms, and rightfully so. But nonetheless, is these platforms, like your Instagram and your TikTok, there are creators on there that are 
creating content and they're disseminating the research and they're just putting it in a way that we all actually want to listen to. It's not some boring professor uh, speaking about his life research projects. It's now a 29-year-old firefighter who's been on for seven years who happens to have a bachelor's degree in kinesiology who's making some video content now. So I think that's a huge power in one, social platforms, but two, I think that's going to be the future in firefighting. And this is something that I keep telling myself that I'm going to do and I'm going to do and it just hasn't happened yet. Why? We can talk about all the reasons why I'm not doing it. But nonetheless, is a lot of these bite-sized, these 20, 30, 60 second pieces of information, this content that firefighters can consume about mental health, cardiovascular disease, injuries, cancer, sleep, all these topics that are very prevalent that we all want to learn more about. We just don't know where to go. But social media, Instagram and TikTok are in our faces every single day. So if there's a content creator out there, and hopefully they don't beat me to it, if they can start creating this content that speaks to the firefighter in their language and very bite-sized information, I think there's a lot of room for that. I think that's the future of the health and wellness side. Yeah, there is a lot of that going on in regards to tactics and techniques and skills and tools. And there is some of it going on with biology and nutrition and fitness as well. So I wouldn't say anybody beat you to it. I think it's just like podcasts. There's always room in the pool. So you getting to it when you get to it and adding your slant on it or being in one more voice that's confirming what's factual. I think there's huge benefit to that. So the other piece you offered was how to build resilience to stressors to mitigate risk of injury. So maybe you can speak to that next. So this one is a very vague topic because we can look at what are the stressors in the fire service or just a firefighter's life on duty, off duty. And we can build a long list of these things in terms of the mental stressors from the conversations that I've had with firefighters is, and this is now this happens more on like a one-on-one basis because this is a topic that not a lot of people really like to share in groups in public, is calls that they go on and some memories that stay with them. Is how do we build resilience to those? Now, for more of physical side of things, is the physical stressors that they are going to encounter when they're on a working fire, whether it's cardiovascular stress or muscular stress, these compression forces, shear forces on the spine, is how do we build resilience to those things? So each one of these prongs is going to have its own, we can have a whole podcast episode on each one of these. So again, just staying very high scope, if we just address the physical one first, there was this paper that I was just reading yesterday too, so I don't have the author on me, but he was looking at spinal compression and shear forces during some simulated fire ground task. And they had this entire crew, they go through the exact same task and they were looking at just how much force there is on the spine. So based on body size, body shape and tactics, so movement techniques, Some firefighters had up to five and a half times their body weight of force, like compression forces, and around two point something to three point something shear forces on that spine, especially in the lumbar spine. So then follow-up study to that one, here comes another research group, and now they're looking, what does PT do then? If we improve cardiovascular fitness, muscular strength, et cetera, how does that affect, does that mitigate, does that do anything to the, the forces on the spine? So they go through a 16-week program, and the firefighters improve both muscular strength, cardiovascular fitness, and some other metrics as well. And, but what they notice is the forces on the spine do not go down. So improving your muscular strength and cardiovascular fitness doesn't do much for the stress that's being put on your body. This reminds me of a quote from one of our, I'll call him my mentor, when I was interning. His mentor, he was asking our intern group, he was saying, he was pointing to a linebacker, 
And he says, how strong should this linebacker be? Like on the back squat, how strong should we train him to be? And all our interns, me included, were yelling out numbers, 200 pounds, 300 pounds, 500 pounds. They should be able to back squat that weight. And he responds, they have to be strong enough to be resilient to the stressors of their job. His job is to deliver hits and absorb hits. He has to be strong enough to be resilient to that. So we take that exact same philosophy over to the fire service now. How strong should a firefighter be? How much should he be able to back squat or leg press or lunge? There's no number that's attached to that, at least not yet. But we know that they're putting through a lot of stress when they're on their job. So the stronger they are, the more resilient they're going to be to these stressors. They're going to be able to put up with these stresses that are on their body. That's one way that I can kind of encourage the, the firefighters to lift heavier, to lift more often. On the psychological side of things, and again, this is not my wheelhouse. This is very the limited amount of research that I've read on this. And I've spoken to other like more mental health providers for first responders, specifically for firefighters. And they gave me a little bit more insight. And this is where I need to be careful because she says, what you don't want to do is unzip someone and then just leave them there. You don't want to topics that are going to like, stimulate these memories of them and how they're in such a bad place because of they're not doing anything about it. What she encourages me is to just touch on the topic and then give one or two tools that she uses to kind of help deal with, or at least mitigate the level of anxiety that they may feel that when it comes to that type of stuff. For me to actually treat it and speak on it intelligently, I cannot. But what she says is it's breathing tactics. It's often that our mind gets away from us as we let our thoughts and ideas kind of really run wild. And our mind is always going to go to the worst case scenario. It's always going to go, I didn't do this. What if I would have done that? And it's always going to start thinking negatively. And she says, when our mind does that is what we have to focus is the one thing that we know it's true. Focus on one thing that we know it's true and focus on your breathing patterns. Focus on your breath rate. One thing she taught me is something called box breathing is where you inhale for five to seven seconds, hold for five to seven, exhale for five to seven, hold for five to seven, and just continue going through that box. And she says, any thoughts that come to you while you are breathing, picture them as they're being a leaf that just coming to you, hitting you, and just floating away from you. Don't beat yourself up because you keep thinking about it. Is let that same thought come to you and then flow away. Just the way a leaf would hit you on a windy fall night. It hits you and it flows away, but continue focusing on your breathing. Yeah, the meditation approach of being an observer of your thoughts and realizing that they came from nowhere and that they will return and leave to nowhere. And people often think meditation is just sitting and being able to keep their mind empty for whatever time frame they've set their meditation for, where the practice is actually bringing yourself back to the calm mind over and over and over again. That's meditating because your mind is going to have thoughts bubble up and you can't avoid that. So it's more about being an observer. And this is something that I'm kind of learning a little bit more of how this topic really speaks to the population. And now, again, speaking from my limited experience on this, is it's a lot of the firefighters know that mental health is important. But in terms of speaking about it openly, that's still a barrier that I see that hasn't been overcome yet. A lot of guys are okay with speaking about their injuries and how they're not fit and their body fat percentage is high, but not too many of them says, I have trouble sleeping at night because of this. They don't admit it like openly yet. Whether it's good or bad, I don't know, but it's still an obstacle that if it does need to be overcome, has not yet been overcome. 
again, I'm always going to refer out and always go to those who have studied this and are professionals on this. Again, I'm speaking from my very limited experience on this, but it's, should we use the language meditation with firefighters? Is there a way that we can change that vocabulary a little bit so it doesn't seem so, for lack of better words, weak? It's the wrong word, but it's the first thing that comes to mind is if someone meditates, does that mean they are weak? And if they are weak, does that mean their fellow coworkers or colleagues, are they going to trust them the same way as if someone who is not weak? If they're going in a working fire together or if they have this strenuous medical call, can their crew trust them that they're going to be there 100% all in and not let anything else affect the way they work? And this is verbiage that I'm getting from kind of one-on-one talks that I have with the firefighters. If the answer is yes, and firefighters don't want to admit that they are quote-unquote weak and therefore need meditation, what is a different way that we can pitch it? What's a different way that we can still talk about this and how important it is, but without saying words that are already synonymous with, I need help, with, I am not as strong as everyone thinks I am. There's a common saying that's for what we would call the t-shirt firefighters. It's very cliche and it's very based in ego. And the saying is, I fight what you fear. This is the mentality. I fight what you fear. It's a way of pumping yourself up or puffing yourself up and making you seem bigger, badder, stronger, like a hero. It's in bad taste. But what came to mind when you were speaking, that phrase came to mind. So it made me think that I fight what you fear, but a lot of firefighters don't want to fight what they fear. Not wanting to delve into their mental health, that's rooted in fear. Their fear of the unknown being afraid of what that experience is going to be like. And so they would rather white knuckle it and put on the armor and the facade and think that they're going to be able to operate properly and still be a part of the group where actually the most effective firefighters take care of all aspects of themselves, including their mental health. We definitely need to get past that fear. One word, if you're looking for a word or maybe a way to reframe it, I find the word curious to be very effective. Be curious about yourself and how your brain and your body work. And just like with thoughts, when they come up, you can ask yourself, where is that coming from? So it doesn't label it as a good or a bad feeling or a thought, but you're curious. It's like, I'm having this physical or mental, I mean, it's both experience right now, whether that be anxiety or worry or so you can name it. Even if you can't name it, either way, you can ask yourself, where's that coming from? And I think that opens up a conversation with yourself. Or if you're speaking to someone like a counselor or something, you can work through where this feeling's happening. Where does it come from? And then from that curiosity place, then I feel people are more likely to go down the path of figuring it out. I mentioned earlier, his name is Rolk. He came to our campus two weeks ago now. And this topic came up, how he addresses the same topic with this firefighters that he works with. And he says, the verbiage that I use is just cleaning the engine. These guys, they know that they have to keep their rigs working. And sometimes their rigs get dirty, they break down, they have trouble, and it's no problem because they're just going to go take it to the mechanic or they're going to wrench on it themselves and they're going to get the rig back up and working. He says, and that's essentially what we have to do is we just got to clean our engine. And things that we can do to clean our engine is, hey, try to do this five-minute breathing technique. It's really helped me. 
he says from that perspective, and I haven't seen this myself, but it's going off of his words. He says, and from that perspective of not bringing up mental health, of not bringing up meditation, of not bringing up these kind of these other topics that a lot of us, there's a little bit of a negative stigma associated with them. He says, I don't bring up those words. My body is my engine and I got to find a way to maintain it. Same way that I PT and I lift weights and I do some sort of stretching, cardiovascular training, et cetera, is these are my mental exercises. This is the way I clean my engine. This is the way I keep my maintenance up. You can either do the small maintenance projects along the way, or eventually you're going to be a car fire down the road. <laughs> he says that he's been getting good, a little bit more buy-in talking about it that way. And kind of conversations like that is what I take, I put into my toolbox. And the next time these topics come up is I pull from that and see how it goes. And if it goes well, keep doing it. If it didn't, adjust. One of the terms from science that is bleeding over into common language and understanding is heart rate variability, especially now with stuff like the whoop strap. People are realizing that even on just on the surface level, that it's an important factor or metric. It's an important metric for people to be aware of for themselves. Maybe you can speak to how that's making its way into the firefighter culture, or are you bringing it forward? Because you did mention it as one of the research projects you're working on. Heart rate variability, I believe this is my personal opinion that this is going to be the future, that social media platforms and wearable technology will be the future in health and wellness for firefighters. Now, why? Because these wearable technologies give you very personalized metrics like HRV, now, very high scope, HRV is the time between every individual beat. So if we have a 16 beat per minute heart rate, does that mean our heart beats every second on the second like a metronome with no beat being too soon or too late? And the reality is that our body doesn't work that way, or at least our heart doesn't work that way. Some beats are closer together, others are farther apart. That variability in there can speak to a lot of different things that's going on internally. Heart rate variability has been tied to mental health, both anxiety, depression, PTSD. Those with those three diagnoses or symptomology, no known to have lower HRV. HRV is also tied to physical health or cardiovascular health. Those that have had an MI, that have some sort of cardiovascular disease, that have had some sort of cardiovascular event already, they have lower HRVs. Those who are older have lower HRV. Those who are fitter, meaning more aerobic fitness, have a higher resting HRV. So there's those who have a better body composition, meaning they're leaner, they have better HRV scores. Now, this can be very nuanced. So we're just going to say high HRV is good, low HRV is bad. Not bad. There just means that we're in a less recovered state. Just to sort of pause there for a second, I think this is where it can be confusing for people because they think a lower heart rate is usually linked to better fitness. They would then think a low heart rate variability is better, but it's actually the reverse because the way it was explained to me, it's, it's how quickly your heart can adapt to stress and recover from stress. So the more it varies moment to moment through your day and it's able to keep up with you, basically, the better. Yes. The more variability we have in our heart, the more resilient we are to these stressors. And these stressors are the ones that we just mentioned, anxiety, depression, PTSD, cardiovascular disease, obesity, et cetera, et cetera. Because all these different things affect our own personalized HRV, from that perspective, it's kind of hard to say mine is better than yours because we have very different stressors in our life. This HRV has to be compared to ourselves. And what we have, at least this is like my theory here, is if we can get firefighters to know what their 
baseline HRV is or their baseline stress is, and then anything that's going to be above that, then we can say with a degree of confidence that they are more recovered. They are ready for more stress. So maybe they can push weights a little bit more. Maybe they can exercise at a higher heart rate. Or conversely, if they have a lower HRV compared to what their norm is, maybe it's, this is a, a day that we take the foot off the gas a little bit. Focus on maybe a five-minute bike ride or five-minute walk. Focus on just doing some a stretch routine for five to seven minutes. Maybe if you can sneak in a 20-minute nap, go for that. Yeah, how do we modify and gauge PT, the intensity of what PT should look like based on how we're recovering, how we're feeling? And this is where oh, I think where my dissertation is really going to come in is start developing these normative values, not necessarily as a population, but for you as an individual, is what technology can we have that's already available to us that can tell us how our HRV is really fluctuating, trending on a day-to-day basis. Now, HRV can be different in the morning, afternoon, evening, right before bed. All these numbers are going to differ. So what we have to choose is choose one time where we're always going to be looking and being cognizant of what that number is. Let's say at lineup, lineup is 0730. Within a 30-minute time window in there is look at how you're feeling. Is this your first day on, your second day on? Are you working overtime days? How many calls did you get last night? How many times did you wake up? Like all these things are going to be influencing how you're feeling. And based on that, then we can start making more educated decisions on what should I do for PT today? Should I really be pushing weights because I'm working overtime with this crew that loves to do the high intensity interval training? Or I'm working overtime at station two and those guys like to do a lot of CrossFit. So for the sake of fitting in, which is a huge part of the fire culture, so this is where I have to tread carefully, is, well, maybe you can do the same workout but just lower the weights or don't compete against the clock this time or something that can really speak to how you're feeling that day. Again, it's the value of pushing your body. When guys think about pushing their body, they think, well, this is the program. I do this workout. It doesn't matter what, what happened last night, last week, where I'm at right now, this is the workout today and I'm going to do it. And I get it. There is some value to that discipline and sticking to something, but Personally, and I'm, what I'm getting from listening to you too, is there really isn't value in ignoring your body and your mind completely and just driving it into the ground regardless of what's going on. That it really is about, you can still have the discipline and the intensity, but it's meeting your body where it's at today and pushing it to that limit or maybe slightly beyond, but not driving it through a wall because this is what the paper says. Exactly. Kind of this idea really stems from when I used to work in sports, I was interning at LA Galaxy and they use a kind of a monitoring tool called StatSport. So it's a little pod that the soccer players, they wear, kind of, it looks like a sports bra and it tracks everything that they do. How many sprints, how fast were they, how many times they jumped, changed direction, everything, the distance they ran. And then it, it just it plots that across time every day it tracks the stress how much work they're doing and then based on how they're recovering hydration sleep breath rate heart rate all these different things it tells you how their body is recover responding to the stress that they would just put on and then based on that the strength coach would just modify little things they wouldn't change the pt program significantly they would probably back off 20 pounds on the back squat they would give them three, four extra stretches to do so they can spend an extra five minutes just at a lower intensity. So I'm trying to see if that exact idea can now apply to the fire service. And to your point, what you just said is it's admirable that the firefighters would say, this is a program and on Mondays I have to back squat heavy. 
irrespective of how they slept the night before. So although that characteristic trait is admirable, how optimal is it for long-term health? Can they continue doing that for the next 12 weeks or the rest of their career for that matter? So if we can somehow come up with a very similar high-performance model that is done already done in sports, then the program doesn't have to change, but let's back off of the intensity or add to the intensity if you're feeling ready for it. How do we know if you're feeling ready for it? Instead of being a very subjective scale is, I think I feel good. It's, I wonder what my body's telling me today. Look at your watch. Oh, okay. I'm right at my norm. This is what I'm usually at. I'm going to go after the weights. And the tech is really improving month to month, really. I mean, having worn a whoop strap for, I can't remember if it was six months to a year recently, and a good friend started wearing one around the same time I did and has continued on. And even since I stopped, the tech seems to be improving in its ability to measure all the metrics that you want to know about yourself. But regardless, even wearing it for a short period of time, the biggest benefit I found, which you're speaking to as well here, is it helped me see through maybe how I'm feeling and how my body is actually doing, or sometimes directly link how I'm feeling to how my body's doing. And just monitoring that over six months to a year, I definitely learned a lot more personally about now I know when I'm feeling a certain way, I now understand what's going on with my body. And then I adapt. Even wearing it for a short period of time, it gives you that ability to put something that's subjective to something that's objective. So those two usually, they go pretty hand in hand. Obviously, our subjective feelings of how we are feeling is going to be influenced by so much. If I just not feel like working out today, then I may say, I'm just not feeling ready. Therefore, I'm not going to PT as hard. But if we would add that extra layer of that watch in there, of that whoop band saying, hey, your HRV looks pretty decent today. It looks pretty good. Then there's that disconnect between those two. So the subjective could obviously be influenced by a bunch of other things. And that's just part of being human. But when both of them are saying the exact same thing, let's say your, your biometrics and your subjective feelings, let's say it's a called a readiness questionnaire, your mood, fatigue, your sleep quality, sleep quantity, et cetera. If they're both in sync and they're both saying that you're not feeling recovered today, then that should speak a little bit as to what, how you should approach your day. A little bit more stretching, more low-intensity cardiovascular training, keep your heart rate under 60 65%, or maybe a slight pace or slow-paced jog, something, anything like that to where you're still doing some PT, you're still getting something in. You're not losing the, the routine, but you're training the way your body needs you to train that day. Yeah, I completely understand why people are afraid to just use how they feel as the metric to whether they're going to work out or push themselves because that's a common thing for people well, for anybody, even if you've worked out and you've stopped for a long time, it gets very easy to, I don't feel up to it, so I don't do it. Not feeling up to it is equated with the slide, the deconditioning, being lazy. I understand where the, you got to ignore your mind and just push. And there is some deep truth to that. But again, that's the nuance. It's not the all gas pedal, all break. It's about when and how and seeing your fitness as an arc over time and really trusting in yourself that you're going to continue to be physically active through your life and that listening to your body once in a while or when it's needed isn't a negative. And all that you just mentioned is goes into this big soup that influences our decisions because this HRV, as much as I am a believer in it, there's still a lot of limitations to it. 
whatever HIV is on your whoop band right now, within 30 seconds, you can make that number worse or you can make that thing better. If off of that argument, how valid is really HRV then? If they can be influenced for better or worse in a 30 second time span. So there's so many different things that still need to be considered in order for at least myself as a researcher to say, this is the end all be all and this is going to be the future of it. I strongly believe that this is going to play a, a big role in firefighter health and wellness, but there's still a good amount of things that need to be investigated and overcome before we do that. To your point is we still have to develop that discipline of, I got to get something in. And how much am I going to let my mind or the way that I'm feeling today influence what my PT is or if I'm going to PT? And for us to come up with a model that's going to fit the fire service and still be true to like the principles of strength conditioning, that's a big puzzle piece that we're all still struggling to figure out. Whoever does figure it out, they're going to be well off. <laughs> I definitely experienced it when I was doing the FireFit slash combat challenge. There were a lot of times either in training or on race day where I didn't feel great. And I thought, oh, this is going to destroy me. And partway through it, I felt completely different. Like I ended up running really, really well and feeling great. And I've also had the reverse where I felt Olympic and it just ate me up. So it would have been interesting back then to also have the tech to sort of measure what was actually going on and learn something about myself and how to link the numbers with the feeling. And recently in wearing that strap, and for those that haven't worn them, the basics are you're either in the red, you're in the yellow, or you're in the green. For the first month or so, I believe, it's learning what your baseline is, and then it would have your baseline. So again, speaking to what you're saying, for your personal heart rate variability, it's tuned to me. It's not tuned to you. So if you wore my strap, it wouldn't be calibrated to you. But what my friend was also recognizing over time is that as your fitness increases, the strap is then recalibrating. So days where he's feeling like in the green, but he's showing yellow. And that's because he's rebaselined and it's adapted to him. It's changing with you. So it's kind of a thing, a living thing that you need to adjust your analyzing of it along the way, as opposed to it's set red, yellow, green, and it means the same thing all the time. Yes. So what you just said reminded me of this book by Scott Galloway. It's called The Four. He talks about Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. And the algorithms behind these mega companies, these tech companies, is that they know you better than you know yourself. Through all your Google history, Google knows how many kids you have, what kind of car do you drive, it knows a lot of personal things about your life. So that same exact technology is being integrated in these wearables, where these wearables now know what time you usually go to bed at, what time you usually wake up at, what's your breath rate, what your heart rate is at different times of the day. It gets to know you very personally, like the Aura Ring right now is doing, the Aura Ring, the Gen 3. Well, as soon as you put it on, it tells you to start getting ready for bed around 8 p.m. I myself am a night owl, so with multiple days and weeks of wearing it, now that recommendation of going to bed and the time I wake up, it tells me to go to bed around 11.30. So I can still get my seven to eight hours of sleep-ish. This machine learning, this AI behind it, in my opinion, it's being used for good. It's getting to know us what our routine is like on duty, off duty. Well, that's the tough part for firefighters is their schedule is so mercurial. 
they don't always have a 24-48 or 48-96 or a Kelly is. Whenever there's overtime and they get forced, they got to go on. So there's no set routine for them. But nonetheless, it can somehow pick up on your routine and start recommending these things as, hey, let's try to get to bed now. Because usually you wake up around five or six. Hey, based on your heart rate or your HRV, let's try to get this type of PT in. Kind of all these little nuances, which I, although this tech has been improving significantly, I think for it to be very applicable and specific to the fire service, there's still a big bridge that needs to be crossed. But nonetheless, I, I see it moving in that direction. This is where I believe wholeheartedly that we are going to have wearable tech as a mainstream device in firefighting. I really found it as a way to help me solidify new habits. I think this is why I didn't necessarily continue on with it longer than the time I did. And as I age, maybe in a few years, it might be worthy going back and doing another session with it or a different strap or measurement device. Because once I built the new habits, I could stick to them. My physical and mental health was improving. And so I found it almost like one more thing that I would be constantly checking like my phone. So it was nice to learn from it for a brief time and then put it aside. But I'm pretty sure it'd be good to go back to it now and then to just do a self check-in. Yes. And that last point you just made, it's so true. Eventually we become obsessed with the metrics. What is my heart rate? What is my breath rate? What is my HRV? And we're checking it all the time. It can be fun where it's competitive is, all right, let's see who can get better sleep scores. But to the point where it's obsessive, there's that other negative side to it. One of my, my colleagues is doing his PhD with me. He works with paratroopers. And he says he uses the whoop band for his entire crew that he works with. I'm probably off on the vocabulary here. But he says that the guys, instead of competing of who can recover the most, they were competing as who can add the most strain. So they were purposely not sleeping so they can have a worse score than their buddy. <laughs> right. It can go the other way. Yes. So there's also that thing you got to play around with as well. He says you got to turn off the, the competitive part of it and you can no longer see what your partners or your colleagues are getting as a score. So there's a lot of different nuances that we still have to, one, be cognizant of and see what we can add, remove, modify, and adapt so that it can actually be a staple in the population we're trying to work with. And we probably touched on most of this as we've been talking here, but maybe just to finish off and focus on, you're about to launch a small-scale pilot study with polar heart rate monitors to track on and off-duty stress and recovery. Maybe you can speak specifically to that, and then we can get into where people can find you and reach out to you. So this small-scale pilot, this is independent Santa Ana College, so this is something I'm doing with my university and myself as a PhD student. As much as we know about HRV, there's a lot of gaps that we still don't know how it can apply to the firefighter. These polar monitors are called the H10. It's the chest strap. It can link to your Garmin watch or it can just link to your phone on different apps. One app is called Elite HRV. The other app is called Polar Flow. And it monitors heart rate or just monitors you 24 hours. Unlike your Garmin watch or your Whoop band where you have to turn it on and press a button to look at what your score is, this polar strap, you don't have to. We've asked the guys at least I've asked the guys to wear it. So I, I have four monitors that Polar has sent me. And again, it's very small scale to see where the hiccups are going to be. I asked the guys to wear it while they're on duty. I asked them to take it off if they do get a fire call because we don't want those liabilities. But nonetheless, it's to see how their biometrics are trending in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening, at night, 
this department, they agreed to download their Firestats. The software is called Firestat, where it tells you the, the time the call came in at, how long they were on the call for. So we can start seeing call volume, the time of calls, and the intensity of each call. If they have a bloody nose that takes them 30 minutes to clear, then the intensity is going to be pretty low. But if they have a, it's still another medical call, but it's a 60-minute, and unfortunately, it's, I don't know, there's a fatality. The psychological stress is much higher on that one. So what we're trying to see is, what are the patterns here? Is it the call volume that leads to stress? Is it the call intensity that leads to stress? Or is it the calls after midnight that have the biggest influence on stress? And once we start really learning these patterns, at least on a small scale, then we can start building it up to a bigger scale and then really start speaking with more confidence saying, I think the firefighter's job is actually starting in the evening when they're ready for bed or their body's ready for bed, but they can't recover. That's what's leading to more stress. Or is it the intensity of the call? Maybe they can run 20 calls, but they're, they're, it's no problem for them because they're all pretty low intensity, lows emotionally and cognitively fatiguing. Or is it really just the call volume? Do they feel more under-recovered when they're running 15 calls versus five calls? These things we don't know yet. And until we can find out, then we can't offer potential solutions. I'm doing it with one crew. They're going to start up the 22nd of this month. I did it with just one firefighter just to kind of get some hiccups out of the way. So now we're going to do it with a crew of four. After this, I'll pass it on to a different crew and just start seeing what this looks like. And once I can work up some hiccups, then we'll go more on a bigger scale. We'll start getting multiple crews involved, those with different shift schedules, those at the busy houses versus the less busy houses, really kind of understanding all these things. And kind of to the point that we were talking about earlier, because a lot of these wearable tech companies, they have an open API, and we can pull a lot of this data and start matching it up against the HRV data and start building these patterns. And then we can notice what correlates with what. That's why I really believe that wearable tech is the future. And until we start knowing the nuances of the stresses of the job, then we can start building some viable solutions. And I think this is where my dissertation is really going to take me. On kind of a different note, some companies have reached out to me to say, hey, here's this watch. If you can push it against on the firefighters, or at least promote it to the firefighters. As interesting as it sounds is what I don't, what I can't do is tie myself to a company and say that this is the one because now my word is now biased. Polar was nice enough to give me four monitors, but I'm not sponsored by them. I'm not getting a kickback from them. It's just one of the, the monitors that can do 24-hour continuous monitoring as opposed to like Garmin or Whoop that you have to press a button in order for it to read your HRV. So there's that little disclaimer there. Yeah, I guess it would be interesting for you to run the same small-scale study with multiple wearables and see what differences there are. So a lot of these wearables have different proprietary algorithms where they use different mathematical formulas to figure out what these scores are, heart rate, HRV, et cetera. Polar uses electrical signals because it's on your chest, while these wrist-worn devices, they use something called PPG, photoprismography, yes. And it's those green lights that go into your arteries and your capillaries, and it's looking at blood flow volume. So the numbers are based off of blood flow volume throughout your circulatory system, and the chest strap uses electrical stuff. So it's going right off of the, the heart. So there's obviously going to be differences between them. We can go down that rabbit hole and start talking about the validity and accuracy of each one, and that's a whole different conversation. But that would be an interesting to find out from what we know right now is, and again, I'm not sponsored by any of these, 
Apple is pretty much leading the charge on all this stuff. Apple's such a great product. They're valid. They're accurate. They're yeah, they're really pioneering this stuff. Just briefly, though, on what you were just saying, my first thought is, wouldn't it be beneficial for a company to have you wear the wrist and the chest? So you would be getting data or feedback or metrics from those two ways of measuring and then combining those, you think that would increase the accuracy. Are you saying two different brands? One company would have to do it, but you would be using the wrist strap, which uses PTG, and you're using the chest strap, which is using electrical. I guess it doesn't really make sense for a company to sell you two products. You got to wear two wearables, but you think getting the information in those two ways simultaneously and, and it being combined, you think you would get much more accurate readings. Garmin does do that. Garmin sells a chest strap created by Garmin and they obviously have the wrist-worn devices. Those two items, they sync together. So you can get the data from the chest strap over to your watch and then your watch will communicate over to the cloud system so you can go see your results after you're done with your run or whatever it is you're doing. So they are currently doing that. What you're explaining right now, or at least I think you're trying to touch on, is to look at which products are more accurate, which ones are more valid for whatever it is that you're trying to track. And this is my opinion. I don't think a private company would do that because now they're just going to find out if their competitor is better than them. And because their algorithms are proprietary, they're not going to share it. There's no way that you're going to be able to say, this is what they're doing. This is how we're going to be better at it. It's up to like a third-party lab, a researcher to take these two items and now compare them against each other, which a lot of labs do. They've taken Fitbits, Garmin's, and Apple products, and they compare it against each other for heart rate at rest and at different levels of intensity or exercise. And this is where we've learned that the Apple product is superior. Now, given this is a 20, maybe early 2010 paper, in those 10 years, all these companies have gotten better. So to replicate that same study now and figure out and ask the same question would be another study for a lab to do. And these companies... Sometimes they will play nice and they'll give you their product and they'll say, yeah, sure, publish whatever it is you find. But other times they'll give you a product, but they say, we own the data. If you find negative stuff, you're not publishing anything. There's that. So when, when it does go to get publishing, you, would, you can't use your name. You would have to say a risk-worn device that has very little value in the scientific world because there's hundreds of risk-worn devices. It's not telling me anything. Well, I think there's great benefit for you to connect with as many firefighters as you can, for them to reach out to you. You would obviously be able to offer them some great insight, maybe in some things they haven't considered. And like you said, you're trying to learn more and more about the culture. So as much as you can interact with people across not only the States, but worldwide, I think it's going to really help you understand the people and, and their job and how you can best support them. Let me know how people can reach you how they can find you, and what's your take on the conversations you're having with firefighters and the ones you'd like to have more of? Yeah, so the way that everyone can reach out to me, one is on my Instagram, it's at Professor D. Higgs, or Professor is just short, it's P-R-O-F, so prof.dhiggs, D-H-I-G-S, my last name is Aguera, so I just kind of cut it down to D. Higgs. So again, Instagram is at, at prof.dhiggs, and then my LinkedIn is just my full name, Daniel Aguera, Aguera spelled H-I-G, U-E-R-A, and I'm a professor at Santa Ana College, so my email would be Igera, so my last name, underscore Daniel, at sac, S-A-C, dot E-D-U. If you guys can reach out to me via email, DM, messages on LinkedIn, I'm happy to have these conversations. 
a lot of things that I would still need to learn a lot about is these nuances of how the culture works in terms of do firefighters prefer to work out individual or as a crew as things are evolving is are firefighters still shopping, cooking and eating together as call volumes begin to increase or is that culture going to, I hate to use the word disrupted, but is that culture going to be disrupted where now it's get your food in when you can. Something I'm asking a lot of the fire guys is what do you think the meal prep services, do you think they would fit in the fire culture? Meaning they would order two meals a day and it would get delivered on the morning of, and now they don't have to worry about lunch and dinner. Would that really fit in the fire culture? If anybody listening could have a little bit more insight on that, shoot me an email or DM and this is the conversation we can have. Any insight that you can provide would help out tremendously. Are there any firefighting podcasts that you're listening to, to sort of get insight into the service? This is something that I recently started doing, probably recently, maybe two to three months ago. And one of the firefighters, they said, hey, have you listened to this podcast? It was called Behind the Shield. Yeah. To my understanding is they're not just firefighting, if I'm wrong. Well, you can correct me or I'm wrong on that one, is they speak to other first responders as well. That's James Gearing, and he does speak to first responders, military, all people that are in sort of high stakes, high intensity work. So that is where uh, one of the guys told me, one, it would be cool for you to get on and really just bring this onto a bigger platform. But he says, two, because you're interested so much in learning about the fire culture, listen to other firefighters talk and you will pick up on culture that way. Because in here, you're not going to be on the table with us, shooting the shit with us for 24 hours. But where can you go find it? Podcast. Just go listen to these guys talk. You'll pick up on languages. You'll pick up on verbiage. You'll pick up on a lot of trends. I can shoot you a list of ones that I'd recommend for you. Behind the Shield, I reached out to you. Code 3 is another one that I've been listening to. Guys from Arizona, the host is in Arizona. And one more that I would have to pull up my list that I can't kind of call off the top of my head. But yeah, if you can, if you can shoot a list over to me and getting these perspectives from different parts of the country, and in this case, different parts of North America. Although the job is the same, the culture may be the same as well with tiny little nuances, but learning all these different intricacies is what helps me speak better to the population. Well, I really appreciate your time today. This was great. I appreciate you. Thank you.